Hi, and welcome to Designed for Life, the podcast that brings design and technology teachers and business leaders from across the UK together as we collectively seek to inspire, energize, and create the workforce of the future. Hi, and welcome back to Design for Life, the podcast brought to you by the Design and Technology Association. My name's Tony Ryan. I'm Chief Executive of the Association, and I've got the great honor and privilege of having a chat with somebody almost every second week on these podcasts. So welcome along, whether you're new, if you're first time to Design for Life, welcome. What we try and do is, is join up what's going on in education, in design and technology specifically, with what's going on out there in the world of business and industry. So if this is your first time with us, that's what you can hear a little bit of in a few minutes' time. For those of you who are well-versed with what we do with Design for Life, this is somebody that I've been looking to get on the podcast for quite a while. Jason Young's co-founder of Print Lab. Print Lab, very much on a mission to bring 3D printing and everything that's creative around 3D printing to schools, not just in the UK, but across the world. And although he very much describes it as a startup, I think they're in their fifth year of business now. Jason is helping to lead a very, very innovative company that is bringing new technologies and creative technologies into education, into schools. And as he will talk about in the podcast, the importance of that is great because there are so many jobs that are emerging out there in the world of work that require you to have, whether it's fusion or whether it is PTC on shape that you're using or whatever it is you're using, there are so many jobs out there that require you to have those skill sets at the moment and have some knowledge, some experience of using CAD and then going on and printing from there. So we're going to talk to Jason about the journey of Print Lab. We're going to talk about the creation of Print Lab. And we're going to talk about passion as well, because passion comes into the conversation quite a bit. And that passion for what you do from a career perspective, is it enough to earn the money to have the kudos of being in a profession rather than just a job? Or do you need to absolutely love that, what you do every single day? It's, it's estimated, I read a while ago, that only 30% of people would say, that they really love their job and love what they do. I'm, I'm lucky to be in that 30%, but so many people aren't. And so many young people don't even aspire to that. They see work as something that has to be endured. It has to be done. And I think we work far too long. And, and the young people of today are going to work even longer in order to work like that. You've just got to love what you do. There's got to be an element of passion involved, I would argue. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. So without further ado, Onto Design for Life in conversation with architect, entrepreneur, founder, and innovator Jason Young. Hi, welcome back to Design for Life, and absolutely delighted that today we've got Jason Young, co founder of Print Lab. I mean, Jason, you're here, trained architect entrepreneur, founder uh, of a very successful business, a business that's growing. Jason, I'm sure, will tell you he, he describes it as in startup mode, but I think five years in is thereabouts. And an area that I think a lot of people listening to the pod are going to be interested in, 3D printing is growing in schools, but I feel it's growing probably a lot slower than it should do in the UK. So I'm sure that's something we'll touch on as we get into the podcast. Jason, hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. 
Absolute pleasure. Can you just give us a little intro as to who you are and, and what it is that you do briefly? Yeah, sure. So my background's in architecture. So I've done a master's degree and I worked in the industry for a couple of years working on luxury bespoke homes. I've now landed in the 3D printing industry as the co-founder of Print Lab, which is an online platform of 3D printing projects for schools. And we're very passionate about the use of 3D printing to address real world challenges. So a lot of the work that we do and a lot of our projects are based around assistive technology, sustainability and customization. And yeah, as the co-founder of a startup, you'll often find me wearing a lot of different hats, which I'm sure we'll get into later, but I absolutely love what I do. And I feel very fortunate to be working in such an exciting industry and hopefully inspiring young people to pursue creative careers. We're going to touch on some of the stuff that you do later on and, and like it, some of the materials that you produce are amazing. Um, and, and if teachers have not found them, they need to. But let's let's get to that in a minute. If we could start, first of all, we take every guest back to school. I did a little bit of, I wouldn't call it research, but a little bit of poking around on the internet in order to find out a little bit more about it. Amazing buildings. Queen Elizabeth School in Blackburn. Can you tell us a little bit about the school? Yeah, definitely. So. It was about 30 minutes away from where I live in Chorley, so definitely wasn't the most local of schools, but I think my parents kind of just thought it'd be a good opportunity for me to go to this kind of prestigious grammar school. In terms of Max's experience there, I was always hard work and everything, but I definitely grew to enjoy the social aspect of school a lot more than the academics, so I don't think I made the most of the really nice buildings and everything. But yeah, being a really creative person now, I'd love to kind of sit here and say that I had all these really interesting hobbies and passions from a really young age, but kind of that wasn't really the case. And it was only in university when I actually started to develop and enjoy kind of a craft. And that was anything to do with computer graphics and 3D CAD. But going back to school, yeah, I'd describe it as pretty normal and comfortable and that I kind of coasted my way through, could have done a bit more. But yeah, yeah, I enjoyed my time there. At the time, I believe it was private. It's definitely got the, the look and feel of a private school, although it's a it's a free school now, so I believe it's it's, it's state funded, so it's changed its status a little bit. Um, but facility wise, was was there anything? I mean, you ended up as an architect, which we'll get to in a moment. But that creative side was that brought out of you in school at all? Not really. No, I mean the facilities at school were really really good. I mean, it had its own swimming pool and had all these football fields and everything, but. To be honest, I would have liked to have seen more focus on the creative stuff within Queen Elizabeth Grammar School. So they had a DT department, but a lot of the things that we focused on were being the kind of like woodwork and some work with acrylic. But aside from that, we didn't really get to kind of explore other creative mediums, which was a bit of a shame, really, because anything hands-on to do with physical making, I wasn't the best at. And I think that's one of the reasons why I class myself as a non-creative back then, when in fact, there's a hundred different mediums you can kind of use to be creative. And I would like to have seen more of that, really. That whole argument around what is creativity comes out there a little bit, but you didn't take GCSE design and technology, I take it then. You dropped it when you could. Yeah, I didn't take design and technology. I took art. And basically, my subject choices were kind of all based on whatever would get me into architecture school because back then the plan really was to become an architect and there wasn't really anything that I was passionate about. And I did enjoy design and technology to some degree, but like I said, I was pretty rubbish at all the hands-on stuff and that's one of the reasons why I didn't take it. 
Makes sense. Your dad was an architect, so I'm sort of intrigued. With every guest, I'm sort of intrigued. Is where, where is the spark and how young is it that says, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that? It sounds like you set on architecture real early. It was, yeah. It was actually towards the beginning of secondary, actually. And it wasn't necessarily because I was passionate about architecture, but it was because my dad was an architect. And I've kind of always been the type of person that I always need to have a plan. And it was true back then. And it's probably even more true now. So I was kind of looking over to him and it looked like, yeah, he had a decent job. He works from home, works his own hours, money looks good. And I just kind of thought, yeah, I'll, I'll go do that. But moving through secondary, nothing else really kind of inspired me to move away from that path. So that's what I kind of stuck with. And I don't regret the path that I took because it's led me to where I am today. But I know that other people aren't so lucky. And I think the education system as a whole really kind of needs to do a better job of being more outward facing, providing a lot more links to industry and giving students really a better overview of what career paths are available out there. And I think by no means do they have to have it all figured out at school, but at the end of the day, they do have to make a lot of big decisions like what subjects to take at GCSE and A-level and university. So it's kind of in our best interests and it's really I think it's our responsibility to give them kind of as much knowledge and as many experiences as we can about the real world so they can kind of make decisions based on things they're actually passionate about. Let's touch on that passion for a moment because I think I think that's so, so important. There's an old phrase that if you find something that you really enjoy doing and love doing, then you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that's probably cliched a little bit too far, but but there is an element of truth in that. If you find what you love which I'm fortunate to do. I mean, I absolutely love what I do. And, and, and the fact that I get paid for it is almost a bonus. Don't tell my trustees that, but that, <laughs> that's, that's sort of along the line. And you found that now, but architecture never really flicked that switch for you, did it? No, it didn't. And it was a bit strange, really. I actually thought I was going to become an architect right up until the age of 24 when I was offered a, a job in a completely different industry. And before that, I was pretty 100% sure that I was going to be an architect. I mean, the only rough patch I had was at university at the the very beginning, because on top of this grueling workload that we had, a lot of the work that we did was with physical models and, and sketching. And, and that was something that I wasn't good at. But a few months in, we were introduced to 2D CAD, 3D CAD and Photoshop. And that was my kind of light bulb moment when I started to explore different kind of visual techniques like renderings, collages, photo montages, and these were things that I really loved and kind of helped me get into the flow of really generating and, and communicating ideas. And that's when I started to enjoy the course a lot more. But I'd definitely say that I was much more passionate about kind of this use of digital design and computer graphics than I was about kind of the technical and structural side of architecture. But yeah, architecture did allow me to use those skills. So that's something that, that I stuck with. It was Leeds Beckett that you went to, and and like uh, what I'm intrigued at. I'm sorry, I'm I'm picking at this a little bit, Jason. I know you know, your first degree was architecture. You then went on and did a second degree in architecture, and this wasn't your passion. This wasn't where you sort of saw yourself ending up. But you you're highly qualified, and you carried on that education in an area that you couldn't have been very very comfortable in by the sounds of things. It was a bit strange, really, because at the time. I wasn't really thinking about what I was passionate about. I was more interested in what would make me successful and, and kind of the architecture path. I thought it'd do that for me and money and success did take priority over the things I enjoyed. And I didn't even think back then about what I actually enjoyed. It was tunnel vision on becoming kind of successful. Today, my views on success are completely different. And even though I'm building a brand and generating revenue is a huge part of that, 
my definition of success is more to do with being in a career that allows you to really do stuff that you love day in, day out. And if that brings in money and success or the typical definition of success anyway, then that's great. But it's just kind of an added bonus for me. And we spend so much of our lives kind of at work. So it's for me, it's now it's absolutely essential that I enjoy what I do. But back then you, you didn't really realize it. It's a huge topic, but I agree with you. We don't do enough at schools to push that with kids is that, you know, really what you're doing with examinations is you're opening doors or you're stopping doors from closing, probably the best way of putting it. And you're allowing yourself to follow a passion and follow a dream and follow something that you feel you really want to do. Careers education can be an awful lot better than it is. I just think, especially at the moment, I'm seeing stuff almost every week that careers education doesn't know exists. And that's the problem in tech areas is it moves too fast for schools to keep up. And there's got to be that connection between industry that you talk about and, and education in order to really show kids what's possible. You're doing a lot of that at the moment, aren't you? I mean, we'll come on to where you are at a minute, but I just want to talk about that almost apocalyptic thing that you're doing with kids. You're trying to show them this big picture. It's a big deal for you in what you're doing at the minute, yeah? Yeah, 100%. I mean, our mission's always been to kind of show students all these different amazing applications of 3D printing and industry and kind of bring them through to education. But something quite interesting is that back then, when we first started Print Lab, it was all about teaching students and inspiring them. But more and more as time goes on, we're kind of seeing a lot of potential of students actually designing and making functional products that serve a real purpose in the world. So it's kind of a two-way street. We're benefiting the kids, but we're also doing all these amazing things that are benefiting communities around the world. It's a big area for us in the association at the moment. We very much feel that some of the work that students are doing in school should be live projects. They should be based on what business and industry is working on at the moment and actually scale it down and show students that what they're doing is real. It's not pretend. Yeah, exactly. The world is changing fast and education needs to keep up. The EDGE Foundation is working to help to prepare students to thrive in a fast-changing society. You got into 3D printing. I think it was, it, was, it was your best friend's dad was setting up a company selling 3D printing to industry. And from architecture, you joined that. What did you know about 3D printing at that stage? Absolutely nothing, actually. It was a bit strange because I was offered this job in 3D printing. It was around the exact same time I was offered a job in an architecture practice in Manchester. and. I had no idea what to expect, really. All I knew was that 3D printing was apparently this next big thing and that we'd be building the international reseller network for Ultimaker 3D printers. And it just got me really curious, actually. And another thing that kind of drew me to the job was obviously the benefit of working with my best friend. And I also had a master's degree to fall back on, so that wasn't really going anywhere. And yeah, I just kind of took a step into it. And the first few weeks, we were learning about the technology, so we built an Ultimaker original kit, which is made of hundreds of different kind of laser cut parts and nuts and bolts. And yeah, it was a real kind of sense of achievement when we built that and we kind of saw this plastic extruding out of it. The first things we printed were pretty typical. What I think the craze back then was Pokemon. So we were doing a load of that. But um, my kind of magic moment with 3D printing came a few weeks later when I took a 3D design of a bespoke home that I worked on in the past and 3D printed that. So the technology itself is obviously really fascinating, but when you actually design something yourself and you're able to hold a physical model bit in your hands a few hours later, that feeling is kind of really something special. And I remember running upstairs with that model and kind of showing my mum, and she never stopped me from 
going into the 3D printing industry, but she certainly was not happy that uh, I did eight years of architecture and, and took this drastic change into the unknown. So it was a bit of a magic moment for her as well, because I think she kind of realized that 3D printing does have all this potential, and but mainly because I'm not throwing my career down the drain. There is a magic to it, isn't there? Which, I, you know, I must admit, I see quite a lot of it these days, but I was up in Manchester, Manchester Met recently, and just looking at the stuff that they're doing up there. And some of the things in my hand, I just could not believe that that came out on one print. It was so yeah. much. Was it, was it Print City you went to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was there the other day as well, actually. I mean, some of the stuff they're doing up there is amazing. So you do two years now working in this company. You've gone in with basically zero knowledge, which I find is really interesting because if you'd have said that to a kid at school, you know, you're going to do eight years in architecture, then you're going to switch to something that you know absolutely diddly about. <laughs> and, and you're going to try and find your way in this new. It wouldn't be the way a careers advisor would advise it, but you've gone in deep and you're sucking up this knowledge over two years. I'm guessing this is where the passion came in. You know, when you start printing stuff that you've designed as an architect previously, all of a sudden you're thinking, wow, I love this. Yeah, 100%. I mean, obviously I was passionate about 3D card and computer graphics at university and this idea of 3D printing was kind of an extension of that. It was like an added layer on top of it. And it kind of just really brought it all to life. And obviously one of the things that I mentioned earlier is I'm pretty rubbish with anything making to in my hands. So it was also the kind of speed accuracy and just the ease of having an idea in your head, moving from that to the computer and then to a physical model. So yeah, kind of blew my mind really. It still does today, really. That movement then you've, you've done, um, I think it's just over two years you've done within that company. And then I believe there was a fairly sudden sort of stop-start between there and starting Print Lab. Can you talk us through? Because I'm just trying to get the process here. You you know, eight years as an architect, I'm going to change yeah. to something completely different working for another company. I'm going to learn about a topic that I know very little about. I'm going to gather all that knowledge in two years, and then I'm going to start a company. It, it sounds scary from the outside. Did it feel like it from the inside? Well, the story actually is so Ultimaker International came to an end because the company that we worked for, Ultimaker HQ in the Netherlands, they kind of had a bit of a, a change of strategy because when we first started distributing their 3D printers, they were a very small team of around 30 to 40 people. And then two years down the line, their brand absolutely exploded. And I think they had like three, 400 employees. So for them, it kind of just made sense to kind of take back that control and say, we'll handle our international resale network directly from the Netherlands. And Actually, it was the same people that headed up Ultimaker International, which was me, my best friend and his dad. And it was the same team that I kind of started Print Lab. And it wasn't really a big decision whether to start a new company or not, because there was absolutely no doubt that we were going to leave the 3D printing industry that we kind of grew to love. But the biggest decision really was what we're going to do within this space. And pretty quickly, we decided we wanted to focus on education. I'm obviously going to dive on that. I mean, why education? Because I feel it's growing in the UK. I know it's growing in the UK, and I see some schools that use it fairly extensively as part of their curriculum. But then I see other schools that aren't touching it at all, aren't going anywhere near it, and it feels like we're moving very, very slowly. What drew you to education rather than going to industry business? Yeah, I think a lot of it to do with, with what our experience was with Ultimake. I mean, we put a lot, a lot of 3D printers in schools over that two-year period. This was back in between 2014, 2016, when the hype cycle of 3D printing was absolutely huge. And 
it was kind of a sex that we just became passionate about naturally just because we kind of thought it was amazing that so many young people actually getting access to this technology but the other thing was we thought that it needed a lot of support and one of the things that we noticed was that not in all cases but in a lot of cases there was this kind of really big focus on the technology itself rather than what it can do so there was this focus on how to use 3d printers how to operate them how to use slicing software but it all kind of felt a bit disconnected from the rest of the design process where all this creative good stuff happens so when we started print lab we really wanted to maximize the potential 3d printing in the classroom really by getting students to work through the full iterative design process on meaningful challenges I'm right. You're working really across the world. I mean, you, you, you said when we had a chat prior to the pod that USA is probably your biggest client at the moment. You must see what drives this in schools. And I'm guessing government intervention and government push has got to be a big driver for curriculum. Why do you think the states are way ahead of us in the UK at the moment? I think a lot of UK schools do have 3D printers but from what I can see from the outside looking in, they seem to be used a lot more frequently and on a lot bigger scale in places like the US. I think in terms of where we've made sales, I think 70 to 80% of our sales have been to the US. And I think it's a big part to do with government funding. But I think also it's because of where 3D printing fits into the curriculum. So the US has a lot of different elective subjects that are really heavily focused on 3D design and 3D printing, whereas obviously 3D printing in the UK generally falls within design and technology mixed in with kind of a whole range of tools and processes. And I think there's a lot of good things happening in the UK, but for personal reasons, and obviously I'd like to see 3D printing being a bigger part of a more kind of compact curriculum as well. Design and technology, people listening to the podcast won't need me to say this, but you know we've got reduced numbers at secondary schools. We've got quite a lot of secondary schools that can't find the right staff to teach it. We've got non-specialists now teaching at Key Stage 3 quite a lot across the board. And 3D printing is a big step up. If you're a non-specialist and you're struggling anyway, you're going to probably struggle with some of the modern technologies that you're going to be pushed into. Yeah, one thing I have noticed, Tony, is that in the US, a lot of our sales, they don't go to schools all the time. They have hundreds of thousands of like ed tech kind of trainers and I think that's a massive thing over there. They, they do have a lot of big STEM programs and money for people to actually get trained. And their sole job isn't to teach, it's to teach the teachers. And we don't see that much of that over in the UK, do we? No, I mean, if teachers are doing well with 3D printing in the UK, it's because they've got an interest themselves and they've taken it upon themselves to teach themselves. Yeah, and I also think that a big thing is to do with time. I mean, teachers don't have all the time. They're perfectly capable of learning how to use 3D printers. But yeah, I think time's a big thing. They don't always have that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and we found, I mean, we work with Create Education and, and to try and bring some into primary ed. And that's been enlightening, really, because most of the teachers using those printers have got humanities degrees and yeah. they've never touched anything like this in their life. So they need a real step-by-step, then we do this, then we do this, then this is what you do next, etc. They They need it sort of mapped out bit by bit. However, once they see what it's capable of and they see how enthused the kids are with the learning, they're off and they're running. Yeah. And you must see that all the time. You must hear about that all the time anyway, is that it's sort of infectious, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. It infects everyone. I've never actually seen anyone look at a 3D printer and not be kind of absolutely fascinated. Well, it shouldn't work. It's, it's madness, isn't it? It's, it's like, <laughs> you know, I've designed this thing on screen and now there it is appearing before my eyes. So 
looking at the curriculum, you're aiming at primary or secondary or both? It's mainly secondary, but it's a tricky one, this, because obviously all around the world, students are at different levels. So it was initially like secondary, but we do see a lot of primary kind of students using our curriculum and they're getting better and better, these primary kids, especially on CAD. I mean, they shouldn't technically be using Fusion at age 10, but we've seen it and we've seen them doing really amazing things. So it's nice to see. Some of the software is really intuitive, isn't it? And, and if you're a kid that games quite a lot, then it's not a huge jump to actually use Fusion. Yeah. And then to see something created in front of your eyes, you're off then, you're away, you want to do more and more and more of it. And we've had some great stories where the school wanted to keep it but didn't have the money and then the PTA have chipped in and bought it for the school and it's being used by four or five departments. You know, No departments in primary, but you've got history using it, you've got PE using it, and they can all see a use for it. So it is properly multi-curricular. So what is the benefits? If you were saying to a secondary school that's not doing 3D printing at the moment now, why should they? The benefits really kind of depend on how it's used. So at the most basic level, you teach kids how to kind of operate 3D printers, kind of download models, slice them, print them. I think right off the bat, you're getting that kind of drive and engagement and you're sparking that curiosity. And like I mentioned before, I've never seen anyone kind of look at 3D printer and not be fascinated. But the next level up from that really is learning how to use CAD software and designing and making your own models. And I think at this stage, you're really learning a lot of new technical skills that are very in demand in the industry. So these can kind of really benefit those that are kind of going into those creative industries. And kind of the top level and the level that we kind of want 3D printing to be at around the world is when you use it to solve problems. So when you're using it like that, you're getting all the benefits of the engagement, the curiosity, the in-demand skills, but you've got this massive layer of transferable skills like empathy, collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, grit, failure, and all that kind of combined with it. And I think a good example of it, and not to kind of pitch our own kind of work, but the Makeable Challenge that we run with Autodesk, and this is where students design and make assistive devices for people with disabilities. So they go through this really kind of rigorous design thinking process to make something that really improves the life of someone else. But they're also developing this huge kind of spectrum of skills themselves. And to kind of sum it up, I'd say that 3D printing's a tool that brings learning to life and it enables you to really teach 21st century technical and soft skills in ways that can't really be done with, with pen, paper or textbooks. Absolutely. And if, if, if nobody, if there's people listening to this that are wondering what the Make Able Challenge is, we'll put a link in the show notes to it. But there's some incredible stuff coming out of that. How long has that been going? We've just finished our second year and it's definitely been the biggest achievement of my career. It's absolutely free, so it's, it's nothing to do with money or anything like that. But it's kind of the feedback you get from the students and the teachers. It's something that I absolutely love hosting, really. And it really kind of surprised me, the outcomes that students can create. I mean, I think there was one team that made, it was a baby stroller. So it was for a client that had brain surgery and they had balance issues. And he just had a newborn and he couldn't really take him out in his wheelchair for walks. So the students kind of created this device that allowed them to attach this stroller to his wheelchair and it blew up in the US. So it was like all over all the big news channels like Good Morning America and all this. And it was it was just really kind of inspirational that, that the kids are actually able to do that. 
I've been what thirty four years in education, but it still absolutely gobsmacks me the creativity with with young people. If you give them the opportunity, you give them the context, you let them go. Uh, what they come up with is just just absolutely brilliant. And from what I can see, so many examples of that in the Make Cable Challenge. And as I say, I'll put a link in because I think people will want to go and have a look at it and just see whether their school can get involved. And as you say, there's no cost in that. The resources are there, and it's just need curriculum time for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely free. So we've got like an online challenge toolkit and that goes through the full design thinking process. So we collaborate with a lot of different companies around the world that specialize in assistive technology and they kind of share their views and opinions in a bunch of videos. And then we have a section that helps students to build up their skills in Tinkercad and Fusion 360. So they can kind of do that before they kind of embark on their own journey. And then a lot of it is about design thinking methods as well. So there's a bunch of templates in there to do various activities. And I think a big thing to mention about Makeable and kind of our curriculum and, and the way that we think that 3D printing should be integrated into school is that it's not a step-by-step -step thing. And, and when you do give students that creative freedom, that's the main thing. And that's kind of when you see special outcomes. This is the message we're trying to get over to government at the moment is that we're, we're not really, I mean, yeah, we are about making stuff. It's part of what we do, but the design process, that creativity, that thought process and that empathy that you described that you actually need to get inside somebody else's problem. That's a really, really hard thing for a 14, 15 year old to do, to get inside somebody else. It's a hard thing for an adult to do. <laughs> yeah. And we're asking kids to do that all the time within this subject. And I just don't think we get the credit for it. I think it's a very, very difficult subject. Yeah, definitely. And I think that once they do get going with it, though, like some amazing things happen. I mean, with our curriculum, I thought that the projects that would get the most engagement would be all the ones to like balloon dragsters, anything to do with like cars and things like that. But no, it's complete opposite. It was anything to do with assistive technology. Students absolutely loved it. So it's not just about doing a good thing. They, they actually love doing it as well. So that's really nice to see. Kids just love doing something good for somebody else, which again, I think young people get a hard rap sometimes, but most kids just want to do the right thing. They want to do something good for somebody else. Yeah. I always like to have a conversation before we come into the podcast and you described yourself as quotes. I'm quoting you back now on yourself, <laughs> a massive introvert. Now, I mean, a thank you for doing this podcast because massive introverts don't go on podcasts. So yeah, so you're here. So thank you for that. But the other thing is, I mean, you're heading up a company and whether you like it or not now, you're the face of the company and it's hard to be an introvert and be the face of the company. How have you balanced that? Yeah, this is something that I found really difficult in the beginning. And to be honest, I, was, I probably was a bit embarrassed about it because my perception was exactly that. Like, if I'm going to lead a company, I'm going to have to do everything in my power to kind of transform into this extrovert and to master the skills of public speaking, being in front of a camera, like networking every day. But kind of as we built Print Lab, I realized that that wasn't really true. And just like people use different mediums to design people use different mediums to communicate. So in my case, I will engage in public things like this podcast and like presentations, et cetera. But I think the majority of my time is spent on things that I'm better at and, and things that get my message across in kind of the way that I want to. So as an example, if you go to YouTube and type in my name, you probably won't find anything. Actually, you won't find me on a stage giving an inspirational talk, but if you Google 3D printing curriculum or lesson plans, I think you'll find Print Lab towards the top of the list. And that's kind of because of the digital content that we create on our blog. And this might be written interviews with teachers, case study videos, 
infographics or a range of other things. And the same really applies to our learning content. We work a lot with animation videos and screen record tutorials rather than your typical stand in front of the camera and talk courses. So these methods of content delivery really work for us. And as we scale, I think we will bring on a lot of extroverts and it will kind of give us that added dimension. But we've sold licenses to around, I think it might be around 800 schools now. And we've done this without shouting from the rooftops. And yeah, I remember last week you asked me if there was anything that I wanted to talk about. And this was one of those things. And a couple of years ago, I'd be quite embarrassed to talk about it. But I think it's really important, especially for those other introverts out there that you don't really always have to be the loudest one in the room to kind of make the most impacts. And you shouldn't really let that stop you from kind of achieving whatever your goals are in life. Absolutely. It must be hard being 13, 14. That must be hard at school. It's, it's easy to sit back, do the work, get the grades, but not take part. Yeah, to be honest, it was a bit different back then. I think I turned into an introvert. I think it was just after uni, maybe. But before that, I was I was pretty social. I mean, at uni, I'd be, I'd be going out three, four nights a week and kind of loving attention and things like that. But I don't, I don't know why it switched, but it did. And kind of this is who I am now. The resources that you produce, and I knew quite a few of them anyway, but I spent a bit of time going through them in more detail. They're great. I mean, I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast now. They are, they, they are really well produced. They're very easy to use. They're very student-centered. There's a huge element of teacher in what you do, and you've had no training as a teacher. And yet I don't think there's many teachers would have anything negative to say about the content you're creating. Where do you think that's come from? I think that's all down to collaboration. So one of the first things that we did when we started Print Lab, obviously... It was an issue that I don't have a teaching background, um, if that's what we're going to do. So one of the first things that we did was we started to build this pioneer network of teachers around the world. So we now have around 30 pioneers, all in different countries, all teaching different types of students. And on a monthly basis, we interact with them and we kind of gain as much feedback as we can about loads of different things. So one month, we might all do a collaborative blog together about for example, one month we did a blog about the benefits of 3D printing education, and we asked everyone's thoughts on that. Another month, we might ask them about our curriculum and say, like, does this work? Does that work? And yeah, it's just kind of been a constant feedback loop ever since we started Print Lab. And I've got to thank them because without them, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, and the resources would not be anywhere near as good as, as what they are. And by doing that, we we've not touch wood we've not yet had a bad review of uh, our curriculum from those that have purchased it i think that's the trick isn't it Any, anyone that sits in a room and thinks they can create a curriculum that will fit everybody by themselves is fooling themselves we involve as many teachers as we can in the creation of our resources because they're doing it on a day in day out basis they know exactly what's needed in the classroom yeah 100 i think that another thing is in addition to collaborating with teachers we collaborate with a lot of people in the industry because obviously we're creating 3D printing projects about all these different applications. But again, we can't be an expert in everything. So I think one example of this is we saw a company called Grown.bio and they were making homeware products out of mycelium, which is the kind of root-like structures of mushrooms. And this kind of got us really excited. So we kind of reached out to them and, and we collaborated together to create one of the projects within Print Lab where students 3D print different molds and they plant this mycelium within those molds and they're kind of growing these really kind of sustainable products. 
I was talking to a company online this morning that are doing packaging and are creating packaging using mycelium and are looking to grow quickly. That's twice in one day. That's weird. Yeah, how strange, that, isn't it? Bring your students into the future of design with the CloudCAD platform Onshape. Onshape. We work a lot with business now, and I find some people are very much focused on the bottom line. I mean, you have to be in business. You have to be focused on making a profit. It's what you're there for. It's what keeps the business going. Let's put it that way. Um, you appear to be very, very much value-driven in what you do. And I've picked that up from various things that you've written, bits and pieces that have come out on the web, that there's a sense of purpose and value behind what you're doing. Some people would say that that's a distraction from running a business and making a profit. I would disagree with that completely. I think you can do both. Where do you sit on that? And would you agree that, that you know that's a driver for you? Yeah, I think value... There's definitely a massive driver for us as a company. And I think like the money and success side of things, yeah, it is a big thing and it allows you to scale really. But I mean, we've had opportunities where people wanted to kind of invest in Print Lab, but we've kind of said no, because we do want that control. We don't want other people to kind of dictate where we go and, and they, they might change our values. So yeah, it's 100% one of the biggest things, kind of our highest values, yeah. That's hard to do for a startup, isn't it? Is to say no to funding. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to work with you because you don't always express that. It's just like, no, thanks for that, but no. That's very, very difficult to do, I would imagine. Yeah, especially in the early days when you're kind of struggling a little bit. These days we're on our feet, so we're doing all right. I'm very glad we made that decision not to go down that route. And it's not it's not a bad route. I mean, no. you never know if we did take that route, then Print Lab might be 10 times bigger, but it's it's more of like a personal choice and a choice between kind of me and our team, we really like the idea of growing this kind of lean company rather than going down the venture capital route. And maybe a lot of people disagree with that, but it's a personal choice at the end of the day. We prefer it this way and, and it's working for us at the moment. So let's keep going. It's hard work though. It's very, very hard work. I know quite a few entrepreneurs. I've got friends of mine that run businesses and they say, you know, we, we, we've had big offers of money from venture capital companies but we haven't taken it because actually the very heart of what we do might be ripped out of the business. It will not necessarily, but could be. And, and, yeah. and it's not a chance they're willing to take. I want to keep it close because this is my baby. This is, this is something I really value. And there must be a real sense of ownership of what you've created because you've created something really quite wonderful in, in five years. Oh, thanks for saying that, Tony. <laughs> yeah, I'm really kind of proud of it and I'm excited to see where, where it goes in the future. I can definitely see as scaling quite a bit but yeah uh, we're definitely pretty happy as a small team at the moment where do you want to go if we're looking at print lab in the next five to eight years and obviously this may change along the way but at the moment what is your vision for it i think i said earlier i love the idea of students designing and making functional products for the community whether it's be local or global and i think we've scratched the surface of this with the makeable challenge but i think there's so many more applications that we can explore and developing similar projects in like humanitarian design and sustainability are pretty high on our agenda in the coming years. And for example, imagine if schools were taking in plastic waste from local businesses and kind of turning this into filament and then making homeware products that are sold back into the community. These are kind of the type of things that we want to be supporting. And yeah, they might be ambitious, but if Makeable is anything to go by, we definitely know that students are more than capable of kind of achieving these things. and. The other thing, obviously, is that 
3D printing is rarely used as a standalone technology in the industry. So kind of integrating it with coding, robotics, vacuum forming and other processes is kind of going to be another natural progression for us. I know some schools that are doing pretty much what you're saying at the moment, that they're actually collecting in, collecting back plastic from the community, chipping it up, reusing it and, and creating stuff that then is going back in. I, I do know some schools that are doing that already. So you're not a million miles away from where education at the top end wants to be. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'd also like to see a lot more collaborations between schools and local maker spaces because things like this plastic recycling thing could be done at a very big scale if there was like a, a makerspace hub and there was different schools working with that makerspace and it was all kind of this collaborative community effort. And that's sort of what you're describing in America is that these spaces are more accessible. I was at one in North London in Tottenham a while ago. Building Blocks, that's the name of it. It's in North London. It was an incredible place. Really top-notch machines for everything that you can imagine. Metal, plastics, wood, the whole lot. And you could buy it by the half day. You could buy this space by the half day. And there were lots and lots of little SMEs in there just trying out stuff that they wouldn't have the machinery to try out otherwise. And I think that's growing, but it's still very much, I get to feel very much in its infancy in this country. Yeah, I'd love to see a lot more of that because I think it could help a lot with schools as well. I mean, if you're working through a lot of 3D printing projects, the actual process of printing out all these models can become pretty chaotic but if there was like this a bigger collaboration between a school and maybe a make space that has this huge 3d print farm maybe it'd be quite a bit more productive and kind of there'd be a nice collaboration going on there i'm going to move on to the quick fire round if i could before i do that i mean it's just one thing that you put you put a little blog on your website which i was slightly mesmerized by i loved it and you've put down there 10 things that you've learned about being a startup of a business and 10 things that you've gone through and learned from about running a business. That sort of blog, people don't share very often on, on, on companies. That's the sort of thing that you keep close to your chest. I've learned, I've made mistakes along the way. I've, I've tripped over there, but I've actually learned a lot from it. You're very open with that. That was a strange one, actually, Tony, because that blog... I didn't actually realize it was on our blog. It was something that I wrote and um, I posted it and then I thought, actually, oh, maybe I shouldn't. It may sound a bit silly. And I thought I took it back off, but then you found it. <laughs> and Yeah, you said some nice things about it. So I'm glad I now might kind of actually do a mail out to, the, to our community with it. But yeah, I did kind of have a moment where I thought, take a step aside from pitching the company. And because I don't get out in front of the camera too much, I thought it'd be nice to kind of do a written blog about, about myself, really. What I liked about it was that I think there's an element of bravado with most business owners. It's like, you know, we're doing great, we're doing fab, we're out here, we're, we're doing this, we're doing that, and it's the best product in the world. And actually, the reality behind it is everyone makes mistakes. Everyone trips over and learns as they go. And I like the openness of it because you don't see it very often. And I think that's very genuine. And yeah, I just liked it. I thought it was really good. So going back to your younger self, and you can pick the age, doesn't matter at all. What one piece of advice would you give yourself with hindsight now looking back? Looking back, I'd probably say don't worry about being good at everything. Be proud of what you are good at and what you enjoy. When you're younger, you want to tick the boxes in everything, yeah? Yeah, I think sometimes at school you're expected to be good at everything when no one can be and they can put you down a little bit. But yeah, yeah, definitely kind of focus on things you're good at. Yeah, I'm a massive believer of not worrying too much about things you're not good at and kind of doubling down on everything that you are good at. 
Absolutely. And I guess school has got to be very general. You've got to push on everything. It's only at A-levels you get to focus in a little bit. When my daughter now, art, is just emerging. She's got three A-levels she's doing at the minute. And art is just taking up, I would say, 80% of her time because she loves it. I've got to push that. I've got to encourage that because that's where the passion is that we talked about earlier. Yeah, obviously you have to find a balance, don't you? But uh, I like focus on things that, that you enjoy. Oh, if she wasn't ticking the boxes in the other two subjects, I might have something to say about it. But, <laughs> but she's doing all right. She's doing yeah. all right. Is there a moment where you thought, yeah, that's it. It's clicked. Now I know what I've got to do. Now I'm inspired. Now I'm off. Yeah, I think the moment was when, like I was talking about earlier, when I 3D printed that model of the home that I worked on, it was just kind of a really massive kind of sense of achievement, really. It was, it's a strange feeling, like I, like I mentioned earlier, and it's something that I advise everyone does design a 3D print their own model. And everyone can. You don't have to be an engineer or anything. I mean, I taught my wife how to use Fusion in a few hours because we make a lot of tutorials and things, and she was kind of the, the test rat for that. And have you still got that model now? I do, yeah. It's knocking about somewhere. I've got a few of them, actually. What I actually did with that model is that I used it whilst we were working with Ultimate International. So we created this kind of little architecture box that we'd send out to different architecture firms, and, and it had that model in it. So yeah, it went to good use. Fantastic. Fantastic. I like the idea you still got it. That's <laughs> good. What about inspiration now? Where do you get your inspiration from? Do you have time for stepping back and being inspired by other people? Well, a lot of our inspirations come from organizations that use 3D printing in crazy ways. And the good thing is the things that inspire us, we kind of act upon it as well. So we'll go out and speak to those companies. So a big one for me is Makers Making Change in Canada, which is a company that kind of connects volunteer makers with people with disabilities. Another company that I've just come across is one called Field Ready, and they actually take 3D printers out to areas that have been hit by natural disasters and they're kind of printing out different kind of parts to repair infrastructure like parts of plumbing systems and things like that and obviously over there you can't just order from Amazon or anything like that so it's kind of doing like really big things for people there. Professionally if you had to pick one thing that you're most proud of and say yeah okay put that on a shelf that is something that I'm absolutely proud of professionally what would that thing be? I think I mentioned earlier, but building and hosting the MakeAble Challenge with Autodesk, not just because of MakeAble, but I've been using Autodesk products for 15 years. To say that we're kind of partnering them with them doing something, it's kind of a dream come true. And I've got to give a big shout out to Stephen Parkinson from Autodesk because he's kind of the one that we built MakeAble with. And I think he's not much older than me. He's probably about the same age, but he's kind of been a bit of a mentor and uh, a good friend to print lab along the way. And then last, what advice would you give? If there's a student out there now, whatever age, doesn't matter whether they're 15 or whether they're 18 or wherever they are, if there's a student out there now listening to it thinking, okay, I love 3D printing. It's something that I'm good at. I can use Fusion, I'm good there. What would your advice to them be moving forward career-wise? I would definitely say check out your local library or makerspace that do have 3D printers. Because like we were talking about earlier, I think a lot more of these are popping up and I'm pretty sure they'll be more than welcome to, to kind of take you in and kind of teach you more things, but also allow you to use their equipment. And that's got to be done outside of school as well as within school. Even if you're well-resourced within school, 
if you're going to push into industry or you're going to push into university, they'll want to know what else you've done, won't they? Yeah, definitely. I think another piece of advice is if there's people or things in the industry that are inspiring, you just reach out to those people. Like, I think more often than not, if a student reached out to someone in the industry and told them how passionate they were about 3D printing and, and their interest in the work that we're doing, that person would kind of give them the time of day and spend half an hour chatting to them. Absolutely. I don't know anybody that I've met anyway on these pods that if somebody reached out that they wouldn't respond. Everybody has said, yeah, we will and we have and we do regularly. Yeah. So absolutely. Jason, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you coming on here. I genuinely think you're doing some fantastic work. I'm hoping that the association will work closer with you all the way through. And thanks for coming on the pod. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tony. I've actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. So yeah, thank you. I really, really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Jason, really easy to talk with. He's very, very into what he does. And what I found particularly interesting was the fact that he describes himself as a a, a massive introvert, somebody that isn't happy singing from the rafters, isn't happy being the centre of attention, and, and has found other ways to get that message over, get the importance of what he does over to the audience that he's working with. And if you haven't seen it, please do go on the Print Lab site and have a look at some of the materials that Jason and his team, he would tell you, has produced. From an educational perspective, it's an incredibly high quality material on there in order to enable people to journey into 3D printing for the first time, or those that are more versed with it to actually bring it to the next level. So there is some amazing stuff on there, which is worth investigating. And where do 3D printers sit in most schools? As I said in the pod, it really varies in the country at the moment from our experience. We've got some schools that are massively into it and have eight or nine, ten machines within school. And then there'll be others that haven't yet ventured into 3D printing at all because they haven't got the facilities for it or they haven't got the expertise or they haven't got the time, as Jason alluded to in the podcast, to do the training. So I do think... It's going to be used more and more in industry and in business, and I do think it's going to become something that is a fairly norm within the schools, but it's on a journey to that at the moment. It's definitely not there. So, yeah, thanks to Jason for coming on. As I said in a podcast, introverts generally don't do podcasts, so it was really good to get him on and really good to hear his journey and hear his passion for the subject. hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed the last one, which was our first live podcast at the V&A. I've got the bug from that, I must admit, and in talks at the moment about the possibility of bringing that on the road next year and actually going to different cities, running it in the evenings and inviting students along, teachers along, in order to hear one or two guests of an evening live podcast and get people from engineering, from manufacturing, from design, from textiles, from all sorts of fields that are around the subject and just get them out live and get them talking about their passions, what they do, how they got there, where they're going next. All of those things are all part of Design for Life. And yeah, I'd like to bring it live. Just got a, a little bit of a taste for it at the V&A. I want to do a little bit more. If that's something that interests you, please let us know. Email is probably the best way to do that, which is designforlife at data, D-A-T-A dot org dot U-K, designforlife at data dot org dot U-K. And thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Just click the button wherever you downloaded from, and that will mean that the next episode drops straight to your device. 
And one favor, one favor. If you did enjoy this, tell one person. Just tell one person. Have a look out for Designed for Life. Bookmark it. Save it. And let's grow this a little bit further. Let's get these messages to a slightly bigger audience. So thanks for tuning in. Hope all is well with you. Until the next time, please take care. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, hit the subscribe button now as we have guests lined up for future pods that will inform, inspire, and entertain. This podcast is brought to you by the Design and Technology Association.